thanks for downloading this podcast, which is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. This podcast was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2020. In this talk, Alex Hobday of the University of Cambridge examines how 18th century culture sought to answer that eternal question, what is happiness and how can we achieve it? The historian Roy Porter wrote that the Enlightenment translated the ultimate question, how can I be saved, into the pragmatic, how can I be happy? For medieval Christians, the earth was a veil of tears, a place for suffering rather than for happiness. But if one was to serve God faithfully, then eternal happiness would be their gift in the afterlife. Men and women of the late 17th and 18th centuries, by contrast, were convinced that happiness on earth should also be possible. In exploring happiness, many Enlightenment figures look to the ancient Greeks. Ancient Greek thinkers also believe that happiness on earth should be possible. Indeed, Aristotle, when he invented the discipline of ethics, placed happiness at the centre. However, in the 18th century, an ancient Greek understanding of happiness had to compete with a more modern understanding of what happiness was. Furthermore, alongside the question, how can I be happy? 18th century men and women increasingly asked another question. Who am I? A curious aspect of 18th century writing, particularly in the latter half of the century, is the way in which it is increasingly concerned with the inner lives of individuals. Whereas medieval people confessed their sins to a priest in order to achieve remission, after the Protestant Reformation, people began to explore their spiritual struggles through keeping the keeping of a diary. In the 18th century, many people also came to use this autobiographical mode of writing for secular means, namely exploring the inner thoughts and feelings which make up the subjective life of an individual. It's quite hard to uh, sort of get at what I mean here, but one way of sort of approaching it is to look at the difference between a kind of a 17th century diary like that of Samuel Pepys and an 18th century diary by someone like James Boswell. You know, in Pepys's diary, is mostly quite factual, even when he's experiencing terrible things like the plague, fire of London. It's generally, you know, some talk of, of feeling and, and reflection, but generally quite sort of factual. And he'll tell you about him going to the Admiralty and checking the, the ships and all that sort of stuff. James Boswell, on the other hand, has nothing like the plague or the fire of London to confront. And yet his diary is full of constantly replaying what's going on in his mind, what his feelings and thoughts are about a particular situation. There's a good anecdote about the, the relationship between keeping diaries and, uh, and happiness that comes from Boswell, or more specifically, it comes from his friend Samuel Johnson. Johnson advises Boswell he should keep a diary in order to keep track of his life. Boswell says he has done, but it's a little thing. And Johnson replies, sir, there is nothing too little for so little a creature as man. It is by studying little things that we attain the great knowledge of having as little misery and as much happiness as possible. So this lecture comes in two parts. In the, in the first, I want to compare and, and contrast an Aristotelian understanding of happiness with a modern one. Modern happiness is a matter of feeling. Happiness is a pleasurable mental state, something which takes place inside the mind of the subject. Aristotelian happiness, by contrast, is a matter of doing. Happiness is an activity, a way of thinking and acting ethically in the world. It is not a feeling or a mental state in Aristotle. An individual cannot say, I feel happy, according to Aristotle's philosophy. Now, I know this is quite a sort of 
foreign concept of happiness, but I, I'll try to make it as clear as I can over the next few minutes. And in the second part of the lecture, I will eschew theory in favour of lived experience to explore how Mary Wollstonecraft, the late 18th century feminist and political thinker, wrote about happiness. This lecture will focus mostly on Wollstonecraft's autobiographical travel log, letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway and Denmark. I'll be referring to it as short residence. There's, it's a very clear title. There's lots of very clear 18th century titles out there like Tintin Abbey. Wollstonecraft is a writer who is in some ways caught between an ancient understanding of happiness as an active to do versus a modern understanding of happiness as a passive to feel. She's also a writer who, in short residence, seems to have two voices. On the one hand, the public voice of the political thinker, and on the other hand, the private voice of the autobiographical writer. This lecture will explore how Wollstonecraft's autobiographical style, alongside her persistent unhappiness, contribute to the expression of an alienated happiness, a happiness which is so intensely private and subjective that it loses connection to the world entirely. In this respect, one of the concerns of the lecture is to note a curious historical co-occurrence, the mutual emergence in and around the 18th century of a new notion of inward happiness, defined as a feeling, alongside a new genre for the exploration of inwardness and subjectivity, namely the autobiography. So turning first, uh, first of all, to the distinction between an ancient happiness defined by doing and a modern happiness defined by feeling, I want to first give a brief account of Aristotle's definition of happiness. When Aristotle invented the field of philosophical inquiry known as ethics, he placed happiness at the center. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle argues that the purpose of human life is happiness, or rather eudaimonia, the ancient Greek word for happiness. Some, some translators prefer to, to translate eudaimonia as human flourishing rather than happiness. Uh, this is partly because uh, we tend to associate happiness with something slightly more narrow, aka a mental state, um, whereas eudaimonia is a slightly wider concept. So it is the Greek word for happiness, but some people translate it as human flourishing. Aristotle defines eudaimonia as follows. The good of man is the active exercise of his soul's faculties in conformity with excellence or virtue. Moreover, to be happy takes a complete lifetime for one swallow does not make a spring. I should pause also uh, just to explain the way I'm going to be using uh, uh, the word virtue alongside the word excellence is partly because uh, the word arete, which is the word Aristotle means, means both virtue and excellence. So, so he's definitely talking about moral virtue, things like courage and, and, and you know, moral behavior. But he's also talking about, he's also talking about being excellent at things like an excellent sports person has, is, is virtuous, an excellent carpenter is virtuous uh, by virtue of being excellent at the activity they're doing. We are not happy in Aristotle's account because we privately experience pleasurable states of euphoria. Aristotle does think that the exercise of virtue will normally be accompanied by pleasure. The experience of pleasure, however, which is central to the modern understanding of happiness, is by no means the most important factor in Aristotle's definition of happiness. We are happy mainly because we are continually excellent in our activity over the course of our lifetimes. It has to be the whole lifetime as well in Aristotle, for one swallow does not make a spring. 
Now, it's worth noting that excellent activity includes notions of both thinking and doing. Aristotle names virtues like courage, temperance, generosity, friendliness, truthfulness. He also names intellectual virtues. We need to reason, Aristotle argues, in order to know how to act properly. Virtuous action requires most centrally practical wisdom. Being moral isn't a matter of memorizing lots of rules. It's about knowing how to act a different situation, how to act in different situations. And that requires being able to think and reason effectively. One further central point to make about Aristotle's definition of happiness is that it is highly implicated in politics. Aristotle makes it clear that the Nicomachean ethics is intended to go hand in hand with his subsequent work, politics. At the end of the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle argues that any discussion of human happiness must include the discussion of the laws and societal forms most appropriate for this happiness. Part of the reason uh, for this is that Aristotle believes that human beings are necessarily social animals. What does he say? He says something like um, man is born for civilization or man is born for, for something like that. Man is born for community or something. The human being should not be understood as an independent unit, but as a being which exists in a network with others of its kind. The fact that Aristotle makes happiness a matter of doing rather than a matter of feeling points to a public as opposed to a private or subjective conception of happiness. Moreover, the virtues which Aristotle names are virtues that he assumes are those which are needed to ensure the smooth running of the ancient Greek polis. That's the city-state of things like places like Athens. By contrast, modern happiness is a subjective notion of happiness. Uh, this, for, uh, for instance, social, social scientists, there's lots of social scientists researching happiness. Generally, what they're measuring, or they would call, is what they would call subjective well-being. It's self-reported happiness. It's not so much, modern happiness is not so much about the flourishing of a community as it is about an individual's feeling of happiness. This modern notion of happiness becomes prominent during the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers did continue to associate happiness with virtue. However, virtue and happiness were now no longer definitionally bound as they had been for Aristotle. A case in point is the philosopher John Locke, who's a very important Enlightenment thinker in the late 17th century. Locke def- says that happiness is the goal to which, towards which we should live our lives. He agrees with Aristotle in that respect, uh, but he defines happiness as pleasure. And so do many 18th century and 17th century thinkers, utilitarian thinkers like Jeremy Bentham, it's the same, the French materialists think of it as pleasure. Uh, Locke runs into trouble uh, when he starts talking about the relationship between virtue, i.e. moral behavior and pleasure, because he notes that, well, sometimes we agree to have less pleasure now uh, in order, or we agree to have less pleasure or even to experience pain in order to do what's good and what's right. His solution to this is that we rationally know that uh, that God exists and that the afterlife in the afterlife there'll be more pleasure than we could possibly have on earth and so by consenting to have some pain now and do what's right we prepare ourselves for more pleasure later but he sort of tantalizingly leaves it leaves it open saying well if there is no God or no benevolent Christian God then perhaps uh, then perhaps we should just eat drink and be merry and have as much sort of selfish pleasure as we as we want. Uh, it becomes increasingly common to think about happiness as an inner feeling from the 18th century lo- onwards, although certainly the transition to thinking about happiness in the, this way begins earlier. 
one thing you could do is to trace the meaning of the word happiness. Uh, etymologically, the, the root of the word is the word hap, which is, a Anglos, which is not an Anglo-Saxon, a Norse word, which means luck or fortune. The root of our word happiness is the same root as words like happenstance or happens or perhaps. Uh, so it means luck or blessedness until around the late 16th century when you first see a couple of mentions of the idea of happiness as a feeling. So it's hard to know precisely why this transition happens, that happens the same route as happiness. It's hard to know precisely why this happens, although it seems likely that it's connected with some of the major historical changes that were occurring in and around this period. The scientific revolution, the beginnings of commercial capitalism, the rise of individualism, the birth of liberalism as a political philosophy, Suffice it to say that something about the way in which people write about themselves seemed to change. Towards the end of the 18th century, we find writers increasingly interested on in focusing upon the inward aspects of experience. This becomes particularly evident in romantic writers like William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Wordsworth's great contribution to literature was an autobiographical poem entitled The Prelude, which detailed the growth of his mind from childhood to adulthood. Towards the turn of the 19th century, the autobiographical mode became widespread in literature. Wollstonecraft's often or sometimes called a kind of proto-romantic or a kind of early romantic in that she's writing a few years before Wordsworth and Coleridge really burst onto the literary scene, partly because of short residence, not really her other writing, mainly short residence and the way in which she speaks about the self uh, and she, the way in which she writes autobiographically in, in short residence and also the way she thinks about and writes about nature and the imagination. These are all romantic themes. So modern happiness is a feeling which may or may not be related to our moral behavior. When acting in the interest of others does not bring with it a pleasurable mental sensation, are we to say that happiness is not the be all and end all? That perhaps, as Immanuel Kant argued, moral duty trumps the feeling of happiness. Or are we perhaps working with a version of happiness which is too narrow to fully capture what it means to be a human being? It seems to follow that if happiness is a feeling or a mental state, then given technological advancement, we might soon achieve happiness through biochemical manipulation. The nightmare scenario of this idea of happiness is the scenario depicted in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, a novel which tells of a totalitarian state where human beings are kept permanently happy through the use of powerful antidepressants and through the practice of relentless consumerism. In Huxley's novel, human beings purchase happiness at the cost of their humanity. So at this point, I want to turn to Mary Wollstonecraft, who has some interesting things to say about happiness. Mary Wollstonecraft was a utopian political thinker, best known for her political works, A Vindication of the Rights of Men and A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. In these texts, Wollstonecraft puts forward a version of happiness in some ways compatible and in some ways incompatible with Aristotle's. Wollstonecraft echoes Aristotle's understanding of happiness as a matter of right thinking and right action. She frequently speaks of virtue and happiness in one breath, arguing that people become happier and more virtuous with the cultivation of reason, so far so Aristotelian. However, a crucial distinction between Wollstonecraft and Aristotle lies in who they believe is capable of experiencing happiness. In a manner that seems awful to us, Aristotle explicitly denies the possibility that slaves can achieve happiness and implies that the same is true for women. 
In fact, Aristotle suggests that only an elite class of Grecian men are likely to have the prerequisites required for excellence in thought and action. Wollstonecraft, by contrast, argues that happiness should be possible for all. Wollstonecraft is a, is a utopian thinker. She essentially thinks that we should be able to achieve a, a very high degree, if not a kind of universal degree of, of happiness and virtue in our societies. Um, we just need to reform them. This needs to take place through kind of uh, institutional reform. We need to uh, make society more equal. Uh, she launches a sort of scaling attack on feudalism. The feudal system uh, needs to, you know, needs to be entirely wiped out as it is being done at this period. But she's also very sceptical and worried about the rise of commercialism as well. She thinks that both of these disorder human beings. So we need to have uh, uh, equality in institutions. But most important for her political thinking is education. We need to teach people to expand their minds, to grow their minds, to acquire the ability to use reason only by allowing people to use, only by teaching people and educating people to use reason will we achieve a virtuous and happy society. So this is quite, an, in many ways, Aristotelian way of thinking. So in The Rights of Women, she writes, the perfection of our nature and the capability of happiness must be estimated by the degree of reason, virtue and knowledge that distinguish the individual and direct the laws which bind society. Something changes, however, in the way Wollstonecraft speaks about happiness during her Scandinavian tour. In Short Residence, the voice of Wollstonecraft, the political thinker, is joined by an intimate autobiographical voice. She highlights the tension between her desire to inform and her desire to write of herself in the advertisement which precedes her letters. Her plan, she states, was simply to give a just view of the present states of the countries of Scandinavia. However, she also writes that, in her own words, I found I could not avoid being continually the first person. I tried to correct this fault, if it be one, for they, that's the letters, were designed for publication. But I found I could not give a just description of what I saw, but by relating the effect different objects had produced on my mind and feelings. This is an autobiographical subjective mode of writing. The things she sees are described with constant reference to her inner feelings. The text itself seems to fluctuate between an informative voice and a subjective voice. She will one minute be describing the prison systems in Norway and in the next reflecting upon her private misery. Wollstonecraft was deeply unhappy during her time in Scandinavia. The text of Short Residence is composed of 25 letters written, although subsequently edited during her travels. The addressee of these letters was the father of Wollstonecraft's child, Gilbert Imlay. The two were not married, and Imlay was beginning to tire of their relationship. Desperately unhappy, Wollstonecraft had attempted to commit suicide a short while before her tour of Scandinavia. She was to make another attempt upon her return to London. Fortunately, she did not succeed. She flung herself into the Thames, but was rescued by some passing boatmen. The following years brought better things the authorship and publication of several new books, a companionate and intellectually stimulating marriage with her, with her fellow radical William Godwin, and the birth of a second daughter, Mary Godwin, later Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Wollstonecraft's decision to write in the autobiographical mode was, not, uh, was motivated not by happiness, but by depression. 
One of the curious ways in which Wollstonecraft descri describes depression is that it seems to have the effect of intensifying her inwardness at the expense of her inability to engage the world with, at, at the expense of her ability to engage with the world around her. In the appendix which follows her letters, for instance, she writes that private business and cares made her insensible to present objects. It's as if the experience of misery makes her unable to fully perceive the world around her. As she becomes more and more unhappy, she seems to become more and more absorbed in her own private pain. In Copenhagen, for example, she writes that she cannot recollect that any object produced by nature of art or art took me out of myself. That's a common sort of way of speaking for Wollstonecraft in short residence. She wants to be taken out of herself, but she can't. She's sort of trapped or, or some kind of cloud is preventing her from, from breaking free. Uh, by the end of her travels, she complains that her spirit of observation has fled and she wanders about simply to kill time. She can't see anymore. What Wollstonecraft seems to be describing is a consciousness that, which has become alienated from the world around her. Wollstonecraft formally argued that the promise of happiness is invested in virtuous thought and action in political struggle. An alienated consciousness, however, leads her to revise her opinions. How elusive, she writes, perhaps the most so, are the plans of happiness founded on virtue and principle. The satisfaction arising from conscious rectitude will not calm an injured heart. Conscious rectitude, which is to say moral behaviour guided by reason, is insufficient in the face of psychological pain. To Wollstonecraft, happiness and virtue now seem all too elusive. Midway through her journey, in desperation, Wollstonecraft inquires, and considering the question of human happiness, where, oh, where does it reside? Has it taken up its abode with unconscious ignorance or with the high-wrought mind? The contrast Wollstonecraft is making here is between the sharp, educated mind on the one hand, high-wrought meaning uh, uh, well-fashioned, well sort of put together, uh, the educated mind on the one hand and unconscious ignorance on the other. Education, it is important to remember, is at the centre of Wollstonecraft's vision for the global achievement of happiness and virtue. Here, Wollstonecraft can be found, unusually for her, considering the possibility that a dull mind might be a happy mind. Wollstonecraft's thoughts on happiness are further transformed when she begins to consider that happiness might be entirely subjective. Ah, she writes, let me be happy whilst I can. I must flee from thought and find refuge from sorrow in a strong imagination. Phantoms of bliss, ideal forms of excellence, again enclose me in your magic circle. The reality of the world, Wollstonecraft suggests, is cruel. Happiness must therefore be that which protects the mind and closes it in its magic circle. Happiness here is not an activity, instead it is an alienated happiness one where happiness is a matter of escaping from the experience of being human. Her final letters speak of a happy thoughtlessness. Wollstonecraft seems to have sunk so deeply into morbid feeling that the world no longer seems like a place which offers any incentive for thought and action. Before moving towards the conclusion, it's worth noting that this alienated consciousness seems to crop up in other autobiographical writing in the latter half of the 18th century. 
it's common to describe happiness as something which exists in the mind and melancholia as a feeling of being trapped in the mind and unable to fully engage with the world. I mean, that's common in, in 18th century uh, writing. So James Boswell, for example, uh, in his journals writes of happy, he speaks of his theory that the happy mind is a, is a gallery of beautiful paintings or as a book of flowers. Basically, he thinks that the mind is filled with, a happy mind is one filled with lovely images. The problem with what he calls hypochondria, hypochondria is a sort of old fashioned term for melancholia or depression. It comes from uh, humoral medicine, so kind of medieval and Renaissance and before that ancient Greek physiology. A hypochondriac is a melancholic, it's partly because the, the hypochondriacal organs were supposedly the ones that sit above the stomach and it was there where, which those were the cause of melancholy. Um, it's a sort of difference, perhaps, between the way that people in the past might have thought about an experience like depression, whereas we, I mean, it is a mental, we think about it as a mental state. Um, they would also think about it as a kind of mental state, probably, but it's also a substance. It's, it's literally black, black bile is melancholy uh, and, and having too much of it or an imbalance of it is what causes you to feel melancholy. And then black bile has its own kind of... Um, allegorical relationships with the seasons and with the the universe and it all points back to god um so so boswell in the hypochondriac writes that the, he has this theory of happiness as the images in the mind that he writes that that this experience of of hypochondria means that they these images hide themselves like birds in gloomy weather it's also a kind of move a suggestion made by coleridge in samuel taylor coleridge in dejection and ode where he sort of writes of his theory that the world is cold and inanimate it's nothing really special in there it's only the kind of light of the mind which brings a kind of something special to the world and he calls this thing joy and but now that the joy has sort of died in him now that he's dejected uh, uh the world is a sort of nothing uh, oh lady we receive but what we give and in our life alone does nature live so to conclude, it might be hard for na us nowadays to imagine coming up with a definitive list of virtues as Aristotle did over 2000 years ago. We're all too aware of differences in opinion among cultures and among different people. Nevertheless, I think there is something appealing about Aristotle's notion of happiness as something active, something which calls for us to act and think in the world rather than passively wait for a feeling to come over us. Aristotle's definition seems strong too, insofar as it links the happiness of an individual to their community. Admittedly, in critiquing the notion of happiness as a feeling, this lecture has taken an, an intentionally polemical view. There are, however, certain issues which come with defining happiness as a feeling. What is a happy life? One in which one feels happy for the maximum amount of time possible? What about the natural ebb and flow of emotions, our tendency to move between feeling happy and feeling sad in a kind of ebb and flow? What about ethics? What about meaningfulness? Should not all these things feature in a happy life? Before I hand back to Brian and Samantha, I want to offer one further option for thinking about happiness, one which emerges in some of the most celebrated passages of short residence. There are several of these passages, but I'll just speak about one of them. Contemplating nature at rest in the midnight sun of the northern summer, Wollstonecraft wonders why thoughts race around her mind so agonizingly when all around her seems calm. What, she writes, is this active principle which keeps me still, which keeps me still awake? 
Why fly my thoughts abroad when everything around me appears at home? By way of thinking through this problem, Wollstonecraft reflects upon the alienating power of misery. What are these imperious sympathies, she writes? How frequently has melancholy and even misanthropy taken possession of me when the world has disgusted me and friends have proved unkind? I have then considered myself as a particle broken off from the grand mass of mankind. I was alone till some involuntary sympathetic emotion, like the attraction of adhesion, made me feel that I was still a part of a mighty whole from which I could not sever myself. Not, perhaps, for the reflection has been carried very far by snapping the thread of an existence which loses its charms in proportion as the cruel experience of life stops or poisons the current of the heart. Futurity, what hast thou not to give to those who know that there is such a thing as happiness? Melancholy, misanthropy, disgust in the world, lead Wollstonecraft to feel as if she were a solitary particle, a private being, invisible and unrelated to that which is around her. She writes of the way in which this, this existence loses its charms when the current of the heart, our ability to love that which is around us, is stopped. On this particular occasion, however, her condition is quite different. Gazing upon her surroundings, she cannot but feel the gravitational pull of humanity. While what she calls happiness may remain something not for the present, but for the future, there is nevertheless something happy-like in these moments of revivification. Profoundly absorbed in what is around her, the effects of Wollstonecraft's alienated consciousness are reversed. She is able, momentarily at least, to renew her sense of engagement with her life. Happiness is not quite a feeling here, nor is it a specific act of virtue. It is instead a sort of sense of being at home in the world. Since the world is, by all accounts, all that human beings have, it seems appropriate that happiness should seek to make a home in it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.